Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I can feel the tension in the room, uh, but you can relax now. It's all over. I hope you enjoyed that. Um, it is my absolute great pleasure to introduce to you some of the cast and crew that were involved in the making of Deep State. Uh, so from the end there, we have Matthew Parkhill, who was the showrunner, co-creator, writer and director. Next to him is Hilary Bevan-Jones, executive producer. Then we have Alistair Petrie, who plays George White, Joe Dempsey, who plays Harry Clark, and Sarah Johnson, who has an exceptionally long title, the VP of Scripted Drama Europe and Africa for the Fox Network Group. Um, before I start doing the Q&A, I just want to mention a little bit of housekeeping, which is that the audience are going to see the story unfold, and there's going to be twists and turns and so on, obviously, if you've just seen. If you could keep those secret, we would be very grateful. So please don't tweet or, or tell your family and friends. In particular, we really want to keep the fact that Harry Clark has survived a big secret. It is a big spoiler. Please, we'd be very grateful. Thank you. Um, perhaps I could start with you. Matthew, do you want to just tell me a little bit about the nub of this story? Why did you want to tell this story? Um, yeah, it started... Um, a friend of mine, Simon Maxwell, who worked for Red Arrow at the time, brought a, an idea called The Nine to me, which was about a, a spy given a... or an ex-spy given a Sophie's Choice uh, between saving his present family and saving his uh, old family. And it sort of started ideas ball started rolling from there and I um, started digging into that and then I read I came across an article about a Texas-based engineering and construction firm called KBR that between 2003 and 2013 made 39.5 billion dollars out of the Iraq war and I started to think about how a company might uh, continue to, to, to make those kinds of returns it's a it's a you know I always say it's a, it's a return even Fox can't quite manage that kind of return <laughs> But, um, and the more I started to read about it, the more I started to look into certain, you know, things to do with the war machine. And, and you know, I came across another fact that there was a, a gym uh, built in, in a U.S. base in Djibouti. And the, the company that built the gym charged the Department of Defense in the United States $25 million to build a gym. And I was like, shit, that's, that's a hell of a gym, you know. And so the more I started to read, the more I started to come across these facts. And I started to realize it's the perfect vehicle to... On the one side, you've got a sort of personal story, which is a, a, a man who's trying to, to start again, a man who's trying to uh, make amends for his past. And if I could amend that, uh, if I could um, marry that with the political story uh, of the deep state, um, that was sort of the, the beginning of the idea. And then the, the final piece of the puzzle, we got a green light on the eve of uh, the pre last year's presidential election, uh, which turned out great. Uh, and... Uh, and we changed the title. I changed the, Fox was looking for another title because I think there was a show coming out with the five and a half and the four or the three or something. <laughs> so I changed the title to Deep State, which is a phrase I'd come across a few years earlier. Uh, it's actually or, originates in Turkey. And it just was one of those moments where the show grew from what was a was always an interesting espionage thriller, but grew into something that was perhaps more um, timely and more political. Um, and it was, in a, a way, it was a gift that kept on giving because the more... I got in touch with people, whether they were X or my six or X this or X that, the more I started to realize, actually, you don't have to make a lot of this stuff up. And, and so the show is, is, there's an awful lot of reality in that show um, to the point where I ran the story past one of these X and my six guys, and he just kind of went very, very quiet at a certain point of a, something that happens in episode four, which I won't give away, <laughs> and, and it would seem fairly outlandish. And, and I ran this story idea past him, and he just went very quiet, and I said, well, what is it? And he said, he said, you know, you have no idea how close to the truth you really are. So, so the, the kind of the show had a, an origin in the personal, 
uh, and then grew into the political that's how it started. And have you, I mean, you, you mentioned the current state of affairs, of course. Have you actually had to rewrite any of the script as you've gone along because current affairs are almost overtaking? Yeah, I did adapt, I did adapt a lot. I mean, a lot of stuff, um, I mean, a, a lot of stuff I adapted as we went along, um, part, partly when I saw the actors and, and, and how rather wonderful they simplified weren't. It. Simplified it. <laughs> they kept coming to me and said, I don't understand what the fuck this means. No, so I had to simplify it. No. Um, but it did change. I mean, the, the biggest change was episode eight. The original ending I had for episode eight uh, completely changed, and I wrote a new episode eight, pretty much new episode eight, in a hotel in, when we were shooting Casablanca to, to kind of take account of what was, what was going on. Um, so it was... It was a, 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 and the great thing about, I think, a show like this or a thriller is that once you, once you can figure out your story... Um, then, then it allows you to weave a sort of interesting things that actually are going on in and around the story. So a lot of it did adapt, yeah. So from Fox's point of view, why now and why was this script so perfect for Fox? Um, why not now, just in terms of... I, I, got, I got really lucky because uh, Jeff Ford, uh, who's, who's somewhere at the back there, uh, at the time was running Fox UK and uh, been put in charge of uh, content... Uh, for us to start originating. You know, we have this fantastic Hollywood heritage of all these lovely shows. And, um, you know, for the region of Europe and Africa, there's, there's a diverse need um, to, to make sure that we really work for all of these audiences. And, um, and, and this, you know, we're in this amazing mature market of, of, of storytellers and actors and, and professionals, and why wouldn't we do it? Um, so Jeff and our team read a script, uh, got into development on it, and I came in towards the back end of that and went, yes. Amazing. Please. Uh, and, yeah, we, uh, we, uh, my first trip to L.A. with the company with Jeff, as, as I was in the air and Donald Trump was winning, uh, we were green-lit, so we landed, and it was like, hooray, oh, my God, <laughs> awful. Uh, so, yeah. The timing is indeed it uncanny. Really, absolutely <laughs> uncanny. Hilary, it is, as Sarah sort of alluded to, got this extraordinary international appeal. As the producer, what, what challenges did you face filming in so many locations with so many different languages, so many different aspects to it? Well, we, um, we opted to shoot in Morocco and the UK, so all of Tehran, all of that side of things were shot out there. Okay. And um, I think one of our biggest challenges was probably in the very first week, and the director, Robert Connolly, had a, all sorts of different things to cram in. Joe, I think, had a, a lot of... went through a lot of different... <laughs> we can talk about that in a minute. Um, I will be. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we had to do a, the explosion that you see at the very beginning of the episode one. And the light was going down. Rob was trying to get the motorbike lined up in the sight line of where the car was going to blow up. And the Moroccans are very enthusiastic. And they got called all their friends. And everyone started coming to watch. We called in. We already had the, some of the army there. Um, we had to get more. We had to get the security. <laughs> and they were sort of cramming the barricades to watch. And so we moved them further back. And they broke into the flats around the roundabout, climbed to the top to watch, and then they locked themselves in. So we had the army trying to get them out. Robert, the director, saying, we've got to go, we've got to go. <laughs> Matthew running up and down, and everyone's nervous spraying, because you know, we had a very good run. And, um, but they just wanted front row seats, just right? for <laughs> this explosion, because they all wanted front row seats. Mm. I was terrified about the health and safety side of it. 
And they were to cut a long story short, they wouldn't come down. They locked themselves in. The police and the army decided they were all right and they weren't going to get hurt. And we blew it up. And I had, <laughs> I, I was very scared. <laughs> so. Can we just confirm that nobody was hurt no in the making of that scene? <laughs> no. I mean, that, I don't know whether anybody clocked the amount of, uh, of stunt workers that were on the credits there. It is as long as I've probably seen on anything. I mean, that was an extraordinary sort of uh, importance to you, wasn't it? I think, were there 40 of them? Yeah, there was a lot of them. They're run by Cedric and Laura. Um, fantastic leaders of the stunt team. I mean, their credits are exceptional, yeah, it's, it's, they, Cedric did a lot of the Bourne stuff, and, and Stefano, who did all explosions, did the, Bourne, the biggest explosion ever committed to film, which was the last Bond movie. And, and it was very important to us to do, I think all, pretty much all the big stunts, apart from one in episode five, are in camera. So, so it was very important to us to blow shit up, is the technical <laughs> term, I think, um, like with the actors and with the people and actually capture it in camera. Um, rather than kind of set, do a green screen and, and imagine that and then we'll do it. Because I think it, one of the biggest inspirations for the, for the show is a film called Syriana and, and trying to capture that kind of groundedness and sort of re realism of a, of a spy thriller. Mm -hmm. So it's very important to us that we do a lot of those things in camera. So yeah, absolutely. And Joe, turning to you as somebody who was involved in so many of those stunts and, and weapon handling and so on, how was that for you? Did you train beforehand for it? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I think over the years, you, you know, various jobs that I've done, uh, you pick up little bits and pieces, but never anything. And I think in a way that's the, the most... One of the most challenging aspects, I mean, there were many, as Hilary alluded to before, but challenging parts of, of playing this character. And you know, one of the main ones is that the fact that you know, he's a highly trained MI6 operative. <laughs> and so everything is supposed to look second nature. Yeah. And it's anything but, to be honest. You, know, you, sort of, you, get, you get a few, uh, a few training sessions. Again, we had, as they said, we had a great stunt team led by Cedric. And I think a few of those guys have worked in of Moroccan special forces at one point or another. So we did get some good time with them in beforehand, and they were always on hand uh, on set just to check, you know, and you just have to say to them, look, can you just pull me up on anything if it doesn't look legit? <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I mean, it was, it was a lot. It's, it's, an, it's an element of the, uh, of the script and of the story and of the, the world that we were inhabiting that really drew me to the character. Um, but, it, but the thing I liked about the, the script as a whole as well is that it has, you know, doing the stunts and everything is, is a lot of fun, but the novelty doesn't last forever. And I think, you know, me as an actor, I much prefer uh, sitting down opposite another actor and talking it out for a bit. And I think this has a nice balance of the two. We're very glad to see you here, by the way, because uh, Joe is in the middle of filming Game of Thrones and nearly didn't make it tonight due to a last minute schedule change. So thank and you. His parents missed 40 seconds. Hot footing it, and as you oh. know, his parents exactly are missing 40 seconds. Got it. <laughs> Got it. The love of parents knows no bounds. How does this compare to other, other films and other TV work that, that you've done? I mean, it's on a pretty grand scale, right? Yeah, I think. I think um, it was, it was pretty unique uh, for me. I, I, I came on relatively late, so uh, there wasn't an awful lot of time beforehand. And that, that first week that Hillary was talking about, I think I had scenes in Farsi, scenes in Arabic, uh, a sex scene with sex an actress scene, I'd just yeah. met, uh, which is always the way. Um, <laughs> Karima and I had only met like a few days before. Um, and, and a lot of the action stuff as well. It was. And at the time, it was incredibly daunting because it just felt like you just had to take each day as it came. And, and um, 
but in, in hindsight, I was very glad that that first week was so packed. That, you know, that first week had parts of every element that I was going to have to, you know, that we were all going to have to take on at some point during the shoot. So, it, you know, get a bit of it out of the way early and it, nothing, no filming week could ever feel as uh, full on as that. I mean, I'd just done the, that Farsi scene with them, um, a little lad, I mean, and then the next day I had an Arabic scene. <laughs> I hadn't even started on the Arabic scene. I thought I'd just focus on the Farsi. Started on the Arabic. I, was, I locked myself in my hotel room after work. Karima was finishing a little bit later. She came back, knocked on my door, said, how are you getting on with the Arabic? And I said, you know what? I think I've nailed it. <laughs> I said, let's hear it. I recited it once and she said, you sound Japanese, we need to call my dad <laughs> straight away. So we got her dad, Karim is, uh, is half Moroccan, so her dad speaks mm -hmm. Moroccan Arabic. We got him on FaceTime. A <laughs> little bit of last minute training, yeah. yeah. Thanks, Perfect. Thanks, <laughs> um, Alistair, we last saw you, of course, on, on The Night Manager. And mm. uh, what attracted you to this role? Why did you want to play George? Um, I love making phone calls. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and, and just for the record, it is also um, very dangerous work. Right? Um, you can get electrocuted, you can trip over the cord. Um, and did you I... have to go training as well in, in yeah. footballs? Yeah, yeah. Um, actually, yeah, years as a 20-year-old unemployed actor working on switchboards. Um, the, uh, what I loved about it was, um, um, uh, it, it's, as, a, as, a, as an actor, the first thing you... you um, you come through the writing. It's the first thing. And in fact, I, uh, I was about to go and see a play um, at the Royal Court, a matinee on my own. Sounds very tragic. Um, <laughs> I do lead a very full life. Um, but I went to, uh, it was about 15 minutes before the curtain um, was, was due to go up, and uh, my phone pinged. I was outside the Royal Court, and um, uh, it was uh, an email from my agent going, um, here are some scripts, um, have a read, and, and just let me know what you think. And uh, I sat in the theatre um, with about sort of seven minutes to go, and uh, I just started to read the first page. And then I got about four pages in, and the lights went down. And I audibly just went, shit! <laughs> and I had to wait until the interval to carry on reading. And I've never watched a play more going, oh, get on with it. <laughs> uh, but so um, I, I, uh, I, I got through the first script by the end of the interval and went back in and then enjoyed the second half of the play because I felt rather smug going, this is very good. <laughs> um, and it's, it's the quality of the writing um, and also its ambition. Um, and I think it's a very tricky balance to find, um, which has been alluded to earlier, which is sort of the spy thriller thing where you do, technical term, blow shit up. <laughs> Um, but also to find a kind of an emotional heart. And that's not just for um, Mark's character, Joe's character, Karima. Um, as, the, as, as the series unfolds, you know, everybody, you start to see glimpses of conscience of all of these things rather than not just good, not just bad. So these kind of, or the grey stuff in between is where it gets very interesting. And, uh, and so when you put all that together um, and the show's ambition, um, then um, it, it rapidly becomes very easy to say yes to. Absolutely. Hilary, we've got some very familiar faces in the cast and some not-so-familiar faces. Can you talk me through a little bit of the casting? Yes, I'm Kelly Hendry, our wonderful casting director. She's here somewhere. Thank you, <laughs> Kelly. Um, Go, Kelly. We, 129 speaking parts or something? There Kelly, was a... The show? <laughs> 130. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit, I don't know how yeah. you do it. We are. I mean, really, it's Kelly, and Kelly gives us a choice. I mean, for example, Lynn Renee, who's here today, who won Where Are You, Lynn? <laughs> Anna, Anna, Max's second wife, um, extraordinary job, and K 
Kelly introduced me to Lynn, and I certainly don't want to lose touch in the future. And Karima is relatively new as well. And so it was, and of course, it's a case of, it's an international cast, and we wanted it to be a truly international cast as far as we could. So yeah, it was, it was quite, it was a really exciting journey, actually. We had one moment with Kelly, and because we have, like, later on, we have like Iranian actors speaking Iranian, and you know, Lebanese actors playing Lebanese. And there was one, we had an Iranian actor booked, and he was playing on the Friday, on the Monday, and on the Friday he wanted to do the role, and the Friday he let his father read the script, and his father said, you cannot do this show, we'll never be allowed back into Iran. And so he pulled out, and Kelly, and I don't know how, managed to find the most incredible actor who came in, and I think even flew himself from LA, is that right? On, uh, to turn up on the Monday or something like that. Anyway, <laughs> so by the Monday we had this phenomenal other Iranian actor who just knocked it out of the park and blew us all away. So I don't know how she finds these people, but she does. That's really important to us, the international aspect, yeah. because even though you know here in, in the UK, we're, we're Fox in the UK, this uh, is going out across our region of channels in Europe and Africa, You know, over 50 channels, lots of different languages being dubbed and subtitled. And as, as I find myself at work, when I'm in a room with Italian people, I'm the stupid English person and they speak English. When I go out of the room, they speak Italian to each other. So, you know, that what I'm very proud of the fact that that is what this show is. We, we follow that through all the way. And you had an international crew as well, Yes, didn't we you? did. Yeah, yeah. We had a, we've got some, a lot of our UK crew here tonight. Some, some of the crew, like David Higgs, um, our DOP of the more of the first block, and in fact, um, Nick Lawson, who joined us, they both came to Morocco um, and uh, as well. But we also had a largely Moroccan crew. Chesco, for our, our first, um, <laughs> he was more, we had a Moroccan first in Morocco because obviously of the language, you had to be able to c communicate quickly with the crew. But it was headed by Hadija Alami, who runs K Films, and fantastic Moroccan producer. And she has an incredible team and she really should take the credit for putting that team together. Yes. And in fact, you were filming during Ramadan, weren't we you? We were, That yes. provided some challenges. That, well, it's hard getting hungry. And, yes. you know, we were, it's very, very hot. And so the scene where you see Joe in the desert, that was during Ramadan. It was baking hot. I mean, just sizzling. And, the, and they're not allowed to drink either. Um, we tried as much as we could to schedule during Ramadan so that we, would, we were starting later and going on into the evenings so that when they were fasting, when the Moroccan crew were fasting, they could rest at home and then come in later and actually manage to eat. But that's not always possible because there's day scenes. So, but they, they're extraordinary. They didn't complain at all. The, Plus, the crew. we rocked up en masse during yeah. Ramadan as well. Yeah. Where we had no choice and we had to go out there. And it was, it, they were amazing. Yeah, they were Just fantastic. treated us so beautifully. And we were sensitive to it and they were appreciative it was lovely yeah i particularly remember a story about some ladies getting a sofa out for you to to make you comfortable correct there? Yes. from their from their lounge and came down and said they'd make tea for everybody they made and we were like tea. there's yeah. quite a lot of us no it's fine you want lunch like, these are also my chairs <laughs> <laughs> i brought them from home yeah, it's very <laughs> i was going to talk to you about the purple actually it's nice it's nice um, I'll be opening up to, to the audience in a minute if, in case people have questions, which I'm sure they will have. Um, but just before that, Matthew, you, you write beautifully for women and the, the female characters in this are very multifaceted. They're, they're certainly not just wives or girlfriends. Can you tell me a little bit about whether that was very much forefront in your mind as you were writing or, or was that something that came naturally to you? Yeah, it is. I think I, 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 
I, my, my daughter was born about eight years ago, and I, and I, well, not about eight years ago, but almost eight years ago. And, <laughs> and, um, and I, I became a better writer after she was born for, for many, many reasons. But, but, I def, but I definitely became a better writer of female characters, thinking about her and thinking about her growing up. Um, and I, I think it's very important. I always get this wrong. I always got the bechamel test. It's not the bechamel Bechtel. test. The Bechtel test. Right? Every, every time someone tells you the name. But, you know, that <laughs> idea of, I think it's like, is it three scenes where a female character has to have scenes which aren't related to a boyfriend, partner, male boss, all that. And, 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 and I am very proud of our female characters in this show because they, they all have their own journeys. They all have, hopefully, their own layers and complexities. And... Um, we don't, you know, we have some fantastic actresses in the show, we have some very beautiful actresses in the show, but we don't, um, we don't, I think, we don't treat them sexually. And what I mean by that is, like, we don't, you know, there are a couple of examples, that Morella, our hair and makeup is here, and, and uh, I used to drive her nuts because people, you know, the actresses sometimes would come out of the trailer and they would look too made up and I would send them back again. And, and you know, with costume, it was the same. Like, with Lynn, when she goes on the run at the end of episode two, we would talk to costume and we would say, well, this is the bag she goes on the run with. So she can only wear what she can fit into that bag. So she can't come every episode in a brand new spanking leather jacket or, or some, you know, something beautiful or like, you know. So it, it's all about, I think, trying to ground it in reality in terms of what the characters would do where in, in that moment. But it is something important to me, and I, and I, and I, I think we achieve. It. I hope we achieve it. And I, for me, it's in the writing process. It's just I treat them the same as I treat every character. Yeah. which I try and give them complexities and flaws and layers as much as I would anyone else. I, d I don't actually weirdly treat them differently. Yeah, no. superb. Are there questions from the audience? If there are, I believe there are some microphones wandering around. There is one down there. Perhaps you can start there. Is Harry here? Harry Escott, I just saw you. Harry Escott's our beautiful composer. Oh, and I just want to yeah. say, for the record, I think that's a tremendous score. Yeah. So well done, Harry. So. <laughs> well, listen, I want to thank GCHQ call. for listening in tonight. So, uh, highly, highly skilled operatives up here. It's, it's, it's a bit like Harry Potter, but not quite as big. You know, keep our secrets. It would be Sorry. very upsetting if people tuned in and they knew what happened at the end of episode one and two. Just think of, think of the family. I mean, I'm not, this isn't a, it's, it looks like there's a samurai sword down there. There is actually a samurai is. sword. That's, it does, actually. Is that Cheska's so. umbrella? Is that your umbrella? Just go always tell them to set with a... No, show it to the audience. I think you should show that. Oh, it is! It's a samurai sword that's actually... These are the conditions we had to work on. there you go. You take that on a plane, Chesco. These guys have all sorts of contacts. They've done the research. They know where you live. I have an ex-MI6 agent who looks like Rick Astley. So if you get followed by a guy who looks like Rick Astley, you're not being Rick-rolled. He's coming to assassinate you. So be careful. Are there any more? <laughs> I mean, I have tons more if you don't. Anybody? In the middle there, thank you. The showrunner for me is, is I, I spent um, six years in the States doing an American show as a showrunner, and we ran to 50 episodes. And so I kind of, although I'm a Brit, I spent a lot of time over there 
um, running a show over there. And so for me, it's, it's very simple. It's someone who's ultimately responsible for the creative direction of the show. And that means everything across the board from, from the way it looks, the way it sounds, the way it smells, the hair and makeup, the costume, um, tone, which is something I think often doesn't get discussed enough in advance when you're making a show. Is, um, and I think you know, the advantage of the system for me is, is, is mainly that sometimes, and, and, and not always, but sometimes you can be on shows where you know, this person's making an apple, this person's making an orange, this person's making a banana. Like, no, you know what I mean? Everyone thinks they're making something different. And the advantage of having a showrunner, and, and I've worked with showrunners in the States, and I've shown my own show, uh, is, that, is that you've got sort of one person who, who is sort of saying, look, these are the, this is the show we're making. I mean, before we got the green light, we went to Fox, and we were very, or maybe it was after me, I can't remember, we were very specific about, I took them through exactly what it would look like, exactly what it would sound like, exactly like the, the way we were going to record sound, the, way, the, the, rough, the, the kind of music we were going to use. But, so it's kind of... It's, it's, it's a role where um, you, you ultimately, I think, are responsible for the, for the, the you know, the, the show. And not, 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 you know, you have an, obviously a massive team around you, and part of it is working with that team to deliver on, on your vision, you know. So it's kind of, it's, that's what it is for me, and, that's, and it, is, it is an American model, and it's the way shows are done over there, um, and not done that often over here. So some, there's some showrunners over here now, but, but it's more than, in America they make this distinction between a showrunner and a head writer, for example. Um, uh, and it's, it's the only system I sort of have experienced, and, and, and I did it on this show when, I, when I, I'd written the pilot, and I was doing the fifth season of my show in the States, and I spoke to Hillary and Tom about doing the show here, and I wanted to come back for personal reasons, and, um, I just said, look, if we do it, I'd like to do it on the same model I've been doing over in America, and is that okay for, for you guys? And they were very supportive, and so that's why we did it this way. I usually <laughs> write between sleep. five o'clock in the morning and, <laughs> and nine in the morning. That's what I usually do. I mean, it, it, and, but we're also, it's, it's, an, it's genuinely an interesting process because, well, it might not be for you guys, but it's for me. Um, because you, you're all falling asleep in yours. Um, no, but it's generally because what you are able to do is be, you, you can respond to things that are happening on the ground. And sometimes, and I know talking to Hillary, working on other shows, if you've got the writer may not even be there, or you know, they may, a script editor may talk to a producer who may talk to an actor who may talk, you know what I mean? So, so what it enables you to do is be very responsive to things on the ground. So let's say you lose a location, or let's say you talk to one of the actors, and they're, they're like, you know, um, I, I, there was a scene, for example, I was directing one of the episodes where Karima's character comes in, and she's just been shot, and she had all this quite quippy dialogue, and I was quite proud of the dialogue, because it was all quite quippy. And then I started blocking the scene, and I realized straight away, it's like, it's wrong. It's just wrong. She's just been shot. She's not going to have the wherewithal to make quippy dialogue, you know? So I don't have to ask anyone else. You know what I mean? I mean, that's the number of it. I don't have to. It's just like, you know what? Let's throw all the dialogue out. There's no, I don't have to then turn to a writer or turn to a producer or turn to, and, and I, think, I think that hopefully the idea is it, it, there's a simplicity to it. Is that fair to say? A simplicity to the, the, the making of it. And I'm not saying, you know, you, you, it's like any other production, you can't do it without the incredible team. But what you're hopefully doing is saying, this is the show we're making, guys, and, and hopefully being flexible enough for everyone to, to fly creatively, to bring their ideas. And, and, and I always feel the more people are clear about what they're doing, the more they can, and maybe you know, Joe and Alice can talk more to this than I can, but the more they're able to sort of creatively spread their wings. I don't know. That's my take on it, anyway. Thank you. Great question. Yeah. Uh, I think we have time for one more, if anybody has one final one. 
No, I will ask a final question then. I wonder if I could ask... I Alistair. do have a final question for Joe's parents, by the way. <laughs> do we get a thumbs up from Joe's parents? Where are they? Yeah, there we go. Better than 42nd Street, though, right? I wonder if you can sum up from... Thursday night, 9pm. Alistair Joe, I wonder if you can sum up by just telling me, obviously, without any spoilers, what can we expect from the rest of the series? Where is this headed? Tell me a little bit. Um, I think the... Um, well, the tension obviously ratchets up. I think the, uh, I think the audience's emotional investment in, in the characters, which is key, really. I think that's what will keep people coming back. Mm -hmm. um, and the more that those sort of characters' lives, um, human lives, starts to unfold and the sort of the moral conundrums they find, I think that's what... Um, I think it's a wonderful combination of those two things that will keep an audience kind of um, uh, uh, returning and engaged and... Uh, and it's, um, it's a bit like a, a, a sort of a kettle that starts bubbling, and by the end, it will be screaming. Although we've got a hot tap at home, and it doesn't do that. <laughs> but I think that's... Metro's uh, only take you so far. <laughs> I know. That's why I'm not a writer. Um, but um, I, I think, um, yeah, that. Looking forward to finding out whether George is a good guy or a bad guy, because at the moment, I'm not clear. <laughs> good. <laughs> Joe, how about you? Um, yeah, I think I'd just, I just echo what Al said, really. I think, I think that as far as... You know, as far as Harry's concerned, there is, um, you know, you saw towards, you know, towards the end of episode two, he makes a decision there that, you know, that he meets that little, that little boy on the, you know, on his sort of road to Damascus, I don't know what he sort of called it, and, and, and the, the lad asks him what, where is he going and what is it that's beyond there, and he realises that there is, there is nothing, you know, he's on, he's on a kill list that, as uh, Max says to Layla, no one's ever survived. And so the only way to get yourself off it is to, is to get to the bottom of why you were on it in the first place. So I think that um, whilst, you know, at the, at the moment, Harry's, Harry is driven both by principle and by um, self-preservation. And um, I think it'll be interesting to see how and if that changes as the series progresses. And he might bump into a couple of the other characters along the way. Do you think? <laughs> <laughs> That is not an official spoiler. He might not. <laughs> Thank you so much, guys. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for. But just to let you know that Deep State will be airing on Fox from April the 5th. Um, and it, please join me once again in thanking our fantastic guests, Matthew Parkhill, Sarah Johnson, Hilary Bevan-Jones, Joe Dempsey, and... Thank you.